there's no one size fits all answer here, but I do think that that it's a bit illuminating the way that um, Tappy Trip talks about this, which mm-hmm. is to say, like, could be for fun, maybe it's for profit. Hundred percent, was going to nail it on that. Too. And I and I think that's the key because anytime I've started working on a side project, as soon as I start to think like, ooh, <laughs> I bet I could sell this thing, it gets abandoned within like. An hour. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 301 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast, Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth, and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam, and I'm surrounded by by noise-deflecting materials. I'm Sam, and I got a plant in my room. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today is March 5th, 2021. Dunk on everyone. Before we get started, we have a warning. Anything could happen on this show. It was more specifically swears. Yep. Probably not anything. Mostly swears and then yeah, some pr- fairly predictable stuff. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, yeah, it's mostly just swears. And then sort of in, in between some of the swears is some predictable things that are not really. Yeah, sort of a swear, swear sandwich. Yeah. A sw- swandwich, if you will. Uh, we'd also like to thank our supporters over at moneygrab.bscotch.net. Uh, you know, thanks for letting us grab your money. Helps us keep our pod pod tubes luby. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about life. Uh, Sam, you, I think you got a thing that you wanted to talk about. I don't know what this is. Yeah, I got so. a well, so I got a book. Okay, you know, um, and I've uh, been reading it as you do, and uh-huh. this book's called Rest. Okay, and it's yeah. basically the science of what rest and breaks and stuff like that do to you for you uh and how they sort of integrate with the body and mind and all that stuff right and that was an interesting thing to bring up given the in the sort of in the pandemic and the post-pandemic life with a lot of work from home setups um people are kind of uh, kind of working like all the time now in a sense uh i think there's a there's a report that went out from microsoft teams that showed that like average number of of like available work hours went up like 17% for people during the pandemic. Um, because now that you're not necessarily bouncing out of the office uh, and managers, corporations in general are not typically uh, good about setting boundaries themselves. Right. So <clears throat> reading this book and it's been fascinating because uh, one of the things I've wondered about with our, with our very small studio is that it, it has always seemed like we pack a bit, pack a bit of a punch given the size of the team. Right. Um, basically mm-hmm. have one person who's a, who represents a, a department, um, in a traditional game studio sense. And yet, uh, we've been able to do like a lot of big stuff, um, effectively kind of learning all the time, solving big problems, all sorts of wonky stuff. And this book, I think gave me a bit of a, a bit of a clue as to it, which is that, you know, we, we talk about on the podcast, but we do have a, I would say we have a, we have a very hard nine to five setup for, uh, the workday, uh, especially as we went remote, actually it got, it got much harder when we went remote. Um, it starts exactly. You mean, you mean the the boundaries got more firm? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and it you know, we start exactly at nine, and then we we have our stand down at five. And of course, it is the case uh, as you know we talk about on the show. Um, if someone's like pumped about something, they might continue working on things in the evening, or whatever else. But we make it a point to not ask anyone for anything after five o'clock outside of their designated hours. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and to actually expressly make it clear. That if you are working outside of those hours, you're only doing it because you're pumped. That's the only. <laughs> that's the only reason. And it's it's not. It's, we don't need you to do it. We don't need you, and we don't specifically want. It's not that we want you to not do that. It's what we don't want you to do that. that yeah. Well, because yeah, our our stance over time has become the one of uh, if we are requiring people to work for sixty or eighty hours a week or whatever, um, in order to just achieve their baseline like required output, then we have a systemic failure. Yes. Right. Exactly. Because that, that means there's, there's so many things have gone wrong up the decision-making chain of <laughs> what needs to happen, who's going to do it, how it's going to get done, et cetera. Well, and, and we have had this as a systemic failure in the past. In our, in our first round of bring people onto the team, we separated the ideas of, of learning so that you could do the job that you were hired for from doing the job you were hired for. And at the time, for us, we were like, "Well, if you don't know how to do the work, like you got to figure it out." And I'm like, and, you know that, but that not should, here, but not here. That shouldn't be our <laughs> problem, right? 
<laughs> which was a which was a really bad way. It's to, a bad to approach, do that. real bad. But and, it's it's uh, actually a very common one in a lot of. Uh, well, that's why yeah, we did it because like that was our own experience. You know, learning mm-hmm. from stuff was that you're not given the time, and if you don't know how to do the thing, but the but it's expected that you do, then like you scramble and you figure it out, and your weekends and your evenings, like everything goes into it. And we had to do that, you know, that's, that's how, that's how we learned how to do all the stuff that, that we know how to do was by just putting in every waking moment until we could do the thing. And, uh, and that had been normalized. We were just mm-hmm. like, yeah, this is what, this is what you do. This is how you, it's how it works. This is, this is how it works. This is how you become, you know, good at the thing that you're Yeah, supposed. 40 hours a week you produce and the other 40 hours a week you learn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so this book is really fascinating because it breaks down uh, basically what happens. You know, what happens when you're when you're still engaged with your work. Um, in the case of say, say you leave a problem at five o'clock. Uh, you know, Adams work on this really crazy TypeScript rumpus conversion issue. Um, you're we've we've talked about it a lot in the past. Actually, there's been I think there's some some chunk of the podcast where we talked a lot about uh, you know giving your giving yourself the breaks away from the problem or the machine or else to let yourself let, let your far more powerful rest of your brain. Uh, basically do some of the work for you and uh, come up with some solutions for you, give you some ideas. And this book has just been fascinating because it sort of, it basically breaks down each one of those kinds of things you could do, like taking breaks, uh, taking naps during the day, um, going for walks, sleep, all this stuff, and sort of more concretely spells out how all of these fit into a sustainable, creative, you know, productive life. And how- we talk about also cuddling pets. No, I mean, I haven't gotten, I'm not done with it yet. So who knows? I, I, I didn't scope out the chapter. Seems like that ought to be in there. But. Yeah. If that's not the entire last half of the book, then I don't think this book is going to But it was, it was just fascinating because it was one of the things where, um, you know, we, we talk about the importance of having some good uh, lines in the sand between the, the, the work that you're doing, uh, going and taking, you know, when it's super nice out uh, here in, in St. Louis, we've been making sure everybody is prompted to go like, oh yeah, go make sure you take, take some time, get outside today, get some sunlight and stuff. And I feel like it's part of it's got to be part of the the secret sauce for what we got going on here. Like the fact that, that everybody is encouraged to take breaks and uh, and allowed to have that time away um, while also being, I think, it sort of allows you to be really excited about the work in a way that then kind of gets it deep, deep into the brain such that like when you're out, you know, actively resting, as they call it, um, then the truth is like when you come back, you typically have a solve for for stuff or at least you have the energy to, to kind of tackle it again. Um, well, I think this is interesting because while well, like, so I, I agree with kind of the, the premise of this, but, it, but it's not explanatory for our own uh, capacity and capability, historically speaking, because we did not do this historically, right? This is for us as individuals and as well as for our studio, uh, actually really embracing rest and like taking breaks. And uh, if like, if you just, if you can't do it, just like stop trying, you know, like you just take, take a, take a beat. And come Temporarily. Back to Temporarily. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, not give up, but as in like. Put that uh, on a t-shirt. If you can't do it, stop trying. <laughs> if you can't do it, stop mm-hmm. trying. Which is, but it, which is true though, right? Because like, as you run into these walls where you just like can't proceed and the thing that's required to proceed is that you have some way to take a step back that, and that doesn't necessarily mean rest, but it does, it means you have to stop doing it. You have to find some, yeah. some alternative approach. Uh, but the point here being that uh, in I know for me, like going through grad school and the whole thing and then the first couple of years of B-Scotch, uh, but then also for our, our studio in those first few years, um, we worked a fuckload. Yeah. Like it was nonstop 24-7 work. And uh, and it was, you know, it was it was difficult in all the ways you'd expect because it was basically just constant crunch, right? Uh, but I but we were still very able to produce. Right. That was that was not evidence against the idea of like of working a lot being. Well, I want to I want to I want to push against that because one of the reasons that and and this is kind of it's a circular problem. Like one of the reasons that we worked so much is because we were doing so many things so badly that we had to work to undo the damage caused by the work that we did prior, right? So one of the examples is when I, you know, in my GEC talk about DevOps, I talked about how how the couple months uh, leading up to the Crashlands launch was, in one case, 60 hours of work over three days mm-hmm. uh, uh, and otherwise just shit tons of crunch in order to fix the thousands of bugs that we hadn't caught because we didn't have any built-in concepts of testing, Um 
the the program like I I just I programmed the game real bad, right? But like there was no better way for me to do it at the time because it's all that I knew, you know. Yeah, but, which, but, it, but but again, but, uh, like we're, we're conflating stuff here because that's not the result of you working a lot. That's the result of you not not knowing about certain ways of programming and not 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 knowing about test driven development. Not us not valuing a QA team and therefore trying to build one, right? Yeah, but all, all I'm saying is that is that uh, I. Because I didn't know a lot, I put in a lot of time of of producing as much as I could um, instead of learning a lot. And all of that production required even more work later mm-hmm. to undo the damage caused by the fact that I didn't know enough. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not disagreeing with that at all. Yeah. Because I, I guess to, as a counterpoint, at the same time, I was putting in basically as much time as, as you were during during those – during that whole stretch of the early part of the studio. Mm-hmm. But a very large fraction of my time went into learning because I had I had learned through grad school how important it was to spend time doing that. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have the same I didn't have the same hang up on that part. But that didn't mean I was working less, right? Uh, but it also didn't mean that you were doing the right stuff either. Since no, we ended up because we also had because we've had to burn down most of the crash ends code. We've had to burn down all of these cut trades. Like basically, well, there, there is uh, no there is no right thing. There's only the best yeah. thing you know. My, my point is yeah. this has nothing to do that all the stuff that we're talking about has nothing yeah. to do with how much we were working. This has all to do with how we were working. And so I think this is an interesting contrast because I, I I wouldn't want to go back to those days of working of basically only every 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 waking moment just being me doing scotch work. Right? Like yeah, I have no interest in going back to that. Uh, but, but at the time it didn't actually, and, and in retrospect, the fact that I was doing that, I don't think was a detriment to the work that I was doing. And so my question here is not, cause it's not that I disagree with this idea or whatever. It's that, it's that, uh, there's, there's not like for my own life experience, the whole idea of like, uh, of you need to have boundaries or you don't need to have boundaries or whatever. None of it has been just true. I've gone through like phases of my life where I've done every variation of these and they've all basically worked. Well, I mean, you're right going to get some results. I think it's a question of, uh, it's a combination question of really, to me, there's, there's a bunch of sightings of like um, patterns that you see when people are getting started versus patterns you see when they're sustaining. And I think what you're talking about is just that difference, which is like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, exactly, that's what I'm yeah, wondering. It's, usually, it's not about working so much it's about working so much in a sustained way for example like that could be the thing yeah yeah well i mean that's basically what it is is like you can't so one is it the yeah you, you basically can't i mean you see it like burnout is like one of the literally like one of the most common things that kicks mm-hmm. people out of the games industry like i'm pretty sure it is actually at this point like people leave typically after three that, to five what's that and all years. the sexism and racism probably yeah well yeah if you're and some, if you're a person of color or or a woman like it's it's you know massively compounded compounded yep, yep. <laughs> And yeah, the, the point being that, uh, that it is the case that especially if you're, when you get started, there's, it's easy to capture that enthusiasm. We talk about how games as an industry, a lot of, a lot of industries do this, but they'll take advantage of the general sort of like the passion driven nature of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which really is just, is really a code word for like, we're going to burn you out. Um, we're totally going to underpay you and demand way too much for yeah. <laughs> and, and just, uh, yeah, erode your, your love for this thing so you can't do it in long term. And so, yeah, it's, it's really about that, that switch from, uh, in the in the early days, where you're just sort of like uh, you're just so frantic, frankly, because um, those days did not feel they didn't feel purposeful. And, and I think again, to counterpoint to this whole like we did produce a lot, like there was a good two year chunk of time. Or I think Adam, your your work on Rumpus was probably the the really the main thing that ended up coming out of that. Versus otherwise, like we didn't have a new game, we didn't have new tech on the game side, like all this stuff just was not going internally. Which of course, lots of other stuff going on, but we were learning a lot though. We were learning it, but yeah. in the most painful and expensive way possible. You know what I mean? But but well, I, I think the I think the trouble with all of this is is it's easy to be sort of prescriptive about it. You yeah, know, like that, you yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but I think in all scenarios, we did the we did the best we could with the tools that we had and the knowledge that we had, and that we couldn't have done any other thing, right? <laughs> because we knew what we knew. And we didn't know what we didn't. Oh yeah, know, no, I'm not. We I had mean, what we had. Yeah, don't get it uh, twisted. I'm not suggesting anything about anything in particular here with this. I'm simply saying that like this, uh, this, this book, I think does a really good job of, cause there's the thing is like the American culture, culture in general, uh, is really prone to this idea of like hard work and hard, you know? And just like we talked about with DevOps, like 
the fact that you call it heroics when your system fails so hard that someone has to sacrifice their body to like finish something for you is fucked up, right? Think about that framing, right? It's not like well, and that's one of the smartest things about DevOps too, right? Is it, its whole thing is like avoid heroics. Heroics are bad. That's that's like yes. one of DevOps core principles. Right? Yeah, you shouldn't need a hero. And I think this. So to me, this this book does an interesting point where like there's so many productivity books that are about like you're getting more time in, like doing more, doing more, doing more. Um, and so it's just a really interesting sort of counterbalancing point about about what the value is of of not like not actively doing something, but rather setting yourself up such that such that you uh, you know you and your brain can have a rest, have a break, and how in the long run that becomes far more important than basically any. Well, yeah, actually, yeah, because I, I, yeah, I want to think about this more. It's basically, in DevOps the again, of, to be honest. Yeah, I want to think about this more in the context of uh, the the framing of of Slack versus rest, mm -hmm. right? Which it sounds like in the, in the way that you've sort of defined these things according to the book, they're actually pretty dang similar to how, it, how I think of like Slack. It sounds like a lot of how they're describing that is basically how, I, yes. how what they're calling rest, right? Um, because I think the reason that like, yeah, you, you can do these short bursts of basically crunch, right? Because I, th I think of crunch as like you have no choice but to very aggressively pour every waking moment into a certain type of work, a certain type mm -hmm. of production, right? Uh, there's no slack in that time, and that burns you the fuck out. There was never a moment in our in our history where like we had to do because like, like Seth mentioned that you know sixty hour three day yeah. <laughs> uh, work week we had right, um, and uh, and that was an all hands thing. So like all three of us were doing that, and uh, and that like I mean that was horrible. It was not like it was fun for the first like day because we were like in it together, you know. And then it just got horrible, and uh, and, it, and, and it stayed that way for weeks. <laughs> it stayed that way afterwards, right? Uh, but it was because uh, I don't think it was because of. I mean, the amount of work at that point was just, was was definitely too much. Um, but I think it was actually more about the absence of slack. There was there was no opportunity for choice about what you do. There's no opportunity for you to spend time improving things and making the process better. Mm -hmm. um, because if I think back to uh, to the early days when I was when I was still working, just way more than I do today uh, for the studio and also in grad school. So much of what I was doing was self-guided, trying to decide what a good way was to do things, learning new stuff and, and like trying to figure out how to do things, you know, productively. Right. So like I look back at my work with, uh, with B-Sketch ID, which was terrible work in retrospect, but at the time was amazing given mm -hmm. my, given like the, the skill set that I had, which was li very <laughs> limited. Right. Uh -huh. Like I look back on the shit that I did. I look back as we, today. as we used to put it, uh, you know, you built it in a cave with a box of scraps. Yeah. Right? Like I really <laughs> did. I didn't know how to use an IDE. I'd never done a web tech before. Like uh, I didn't know anything. And, and somehow I built that, right? Like it's, it's a thing that I look back now and I'm like, I don't know if I could fucking replicate that today, you know? Uh, and, and I don't feel bad at all about thinking that like, Oh yeah. Like I fucked that up or like I, do I worked too hard or I did any of these things like, uh, but the reason I should be proud of it, you know, exactly. And I am yeah. as much as I hate having to deal with it today. Right. Uh, yeah. but the reason is, is because I had slack and yeah. And the slack can, but I think the slack is less about how much time and more about what you get to do with that time. Right. And the, and the fraction of that time. Um, so so the, the, the whole like – because Slack is basically a form of rest. and Because the way that I think of rest is not like uh, – is not necessarily like I'm going off and doing other things or going for a walk or whatever. I think those are definitely forms of it. Those are forms of rest, right? But I think of it as uh, I have, I have, the, I have the, the flexibility to take a step back and evaluate and think and, and bring my whole self to a thing. Like in a creative and you know and and in a creative and thoughtful way, and where I have the time to do some investigation and do some thinking, where I don't have to worry about whether or not that results in something specific, mm -hmm. you know, and, and important happening, uh, and and what what uh, I sort of like always expected when I joined the team from Sam and Seth that I would have that, um, and uh, and so so then I did. Right, because like, because it's a framing thing, and it's and it's that you have to have the the whole group who's all trying to work on and do stuff together has to all have has to all believe that that's okay. <laughs> the funny thing is though that that while I believed it was okay for me, I watched Sam and Seth seem to not believe it was okay for themselves. I'm particular Seth uh, of like mm -hmm. 
if every waking moment wasn't him applying exactly the skills he had to exactly the problem he knew about, then it felt like wasted time, right? It wasn't productive. It wasn't productive. If and at the end of the day there wasn't the game wasn't doing a new thing, yeah, vi- visibly, yeah. then it, then what was even the point? Right. But besides, <laughs> but besides with Sam too, right? Because like with Sam, he was like, oh, yeah. if, if every art asset has to go right in the game, but if it has to be reworked, then that was a failure on my part, or or and if it's not going in the game, part. I'm not making it. Yeah, it's a waste of time, right? And and you can see that this if you look at like three years ago, you know, that was the same way. Yeah, exactly. But but if you look at like if you look back at at how like my my uh, mental health, in particular context of of uh, burnout, was like during all of the B Scotch years versus like the two of you guys. Um, like I was I was much more even, and not not because just because I'm an even person, which is true, but uh, but that's not the reason. The reason was is because I was I was okay with creating slack for myself, and you guys were also okay okay with it, which is why mm-hmm. I was okay with it, right? Uh, but since you weren't covering that out for yourselves, then that made it a lot easier because now you go through these cycles of burnout where it's like you take every waking moment yep. to to do a thing. So so yeah, I, I think I think while while rest is a good thing, obviously, and it's a good framing, and it's and it's a, it is, it's a good specific mechanism by which you provide slack because it's now particular it's like walking away kind of in particular. I think right? we're we're kind of talking about two different things at this point. I think what you're what you're talking about is is basically having the you're talking about still still being under the, the framing of like working, right? Of saying like, okay, yeah, I have this project, but I have the room to uh to actually take the time to ask big questions about it, do some research, go down some blind alleys, you know. Which is important. Thing. Which is a mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's really important. And I think it's you're right that that's that's sort of the flip side of this in the uh sort of hour by hour context of of doing work, right? The difference between we talk about productive production versus uh, research kind of as your two sides of the coin here. Um, and I think about this, this is to me is sort of the, the broader, the broader point, which is there's, there's production or there's, there's productivity and there's rest on like a general you level, like a human level, right. Um, in the same sort of way that there's this kind of production and then slack on the uh, work level, kind of the same ideas where you, you say as this person, even if you're working on, on a Slack project, you know, being able to take an evening and like I said, play Valheim or, or, uh, go just like watch some dumb, like some WandaVision stuff or, you know, go, go for a long walk over lunch or just kind of hang out with some cats for a bit. Um, all these things are actually, they're really important for getting to, getting to a final, uh, solution state for some of these thornier problems. And I think it's one of those things that you, you look at like you know, CD Project Red with the crunch that happened there and all this shit that hit the fan when the, mm-hmm. when Cyberpunk came out. And it's like, it's, it's, I guess it remains surprising to me how surprising it is to people that, that crunch, that uh, overwork, that this constant work uh, ethos is extremely corrosive. Yeah. Well, I, I, th- I think, I think that the issue is you can't purely grind your way through complicated problems, Absolutely. but, it, but there's a, a flip side to that, which is you do have to grind uh, because what the rest is doing is it's giving your subconscious mind time to form patterns and churn on it, but you still have to fuel it, right? So you still have to put in the time doing heavy research, learning as much as you can about the problem, and then mm-hmm. just let it marinate. And you, you still know? have to do work badly to learn how those things act, what they actually mean, you know, there's... There's no way around that, but yeah, no, but I think I, I think the nuance here is really interesting, which is which is I think I think you're right that like Slack and Rust are not quite the same thing, but I, I do think they're actually really similar because you basically get to have both or neither. Um, because so if for example you don't believe you have the right to Slack, right? You don't have the, you don't have the right to make your own decisions and and take a step back from raw grind production, right? And and work on process, do research, think through things like you know. Uh, skill up, become better at the, at the, the work related problems. If you don't believe you had that, then that means that every moment that is going into work is a non slack moment, right? Mm-hmm. Which means you're going to burn out unless you can get that slack somewhere and the work gets worse, which makes it harder to rest and so on. And then if on top of that, you don't, you're not allowed rest as in you're not allowed to take breaks from the work. Mm-hmm. Then that means that every waking moment is you grinding and burning yourself out, right? You know, Versus is- if you build, I think this is this, this was tough, like to me, this was the big failure we had when we first hired people, and the, and the, the biggest oh, lesson 100%. that we took away was that was that the slack part has to be built into a constrained workday. It's the only way to prevent burnout, to make sure that everybody gets to learn, to make sure everybody does good work, because because to 
And again, this is all unrelated, right? Because if you're if you're all you're doing is grinding, you also produce worse and worse and work work over time because yes, you become right. less happy and you also aren't taking the opportunity to become better because grinding and only grinding does not make you better. Grinding. Well, I, plus I think a, I think a a good example of this or like a, a an app application of this is comparing like an old approach that I used to have to certain problems versus what I just did like yesterday, mm-hmm. which is a. Uh, a common scenario that that comes up in games is the need to have a button that when you press it, it does something. Uh, and if you hold it, it rapidly does that thing at an increasing rate. So think about like in Crashlands, you, you press build and it builds a thing. If you hold the build button, it'll be like build, 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 and then it'll start building mm-hmm. stuff super fast, right? Um, and that's like a really common thing for buttons that you hold, in games, this like rapidly accelerating cooldown problem. And uh, literally up until yesterday, anytime I had encountered that problem, I'd be like, oh, here we go again with this fucking cooldown problem. And then I would code up all the variables in that object and it would take a half hour and whatever, right? Um, but because, for, well, for starters, because I'm on drugs now, which is great, uh, <laughs> I, I, I have the ability to like just kind of like not just immediately like tackle the problem and solve it, but instead, you know, step back and just say, okay, I've seen this before. I'm going to see it again. What's the long-term solve here? Uh, so I made a, a, so in the same amount of time that it would have taken me to, to just do it by hand again, I developed a cool little system called Icebox, which holds your cooldowns for uh, managing these kinds of scenarios. And now I've just got a simple function that I can run Icebox and it'll just it'll just handle this thing for me. And then the next time I come across this, I just use Icebox. Yeah. And I can use it on everything. Yeah, right? Zero so, time. Right. Yeah. But it's not just approach either, right? It's also like what what are you exposing yourself to knowledge that can make you aware that such an idea is even a thing you could you mm-hmm. could approach. The whole idea of like converting a problem into a tool based on patterns, right? That's not that's not a thing that's just like built into a person. It's it's yeah. It's not a thing you just know you can do, right? It it's comes a, with knowledge and time and experience and uh, a, a philosophy. Yeah, and exposure. Right. And so, like, so yeah. I know for for me, so much is what uh, of what has made it possible for me to become, you know, to be a self taught web dev who's built, uh, you know, a production enterprise. We get to call it probably <laughs> uh, infrastructure yep. uh, that I, when I checked our I checked our uh, analytics and over a single month I. Sent twenty or I supported twenty million successful HTTP requests to our server infrastructure. Right, twenty million without any server fa- failures over thirty days. Right, or at least none that I could see, because of course, yeah, well, but you know, like, fine. But that's like that, that's all shit that I had to figure out how to do. Right, and um, and the way that I did that was that was that I took time to read broadly about what people were doing in the industry, and I listened to podcasts about. Uh, and some of them are pretty fucking boring, right? But I, but like, I just listen to them while I'm doing chores, right? To learn about different aspects of DevOps and, and web dev. And I read the TypeScript blog. Like every time a new release comes out, I, I actually did TypeScript in the first place because I read somebody else advocating for it in my feed reader because I subscribe to all these different uh, these different websites uh, that put out information that are well respected among the web dev community, right? So I know all this random shit and almost everything really useful that I have done. That has made my life better and like made my tech better and made just my skill set grow is not because I was banging my head against a problem and then found a solution, you know? Like that's yep. almost never been the case. It's been I've seen something like it before, almost definitely that somebody else did, right? But because I'd read about it then or saw it, or because I tried another programming language or whatever, right? Then that thing became available. But the only reason any of that stuff was possible was because I had Slack. I had Yeah, if instead it was like Okay, we need. We're going to be developing level head. We need Rumpus up and running and ready to go in three months. You know, mm-hmm. then you'd be like, "Oh fuck!" But instead, you had a, oh, oh yeah, like had a, more than a year. You yeah. had an entire year to get it like developed, conceived, and, mm-hmm. and sort of off the ground. Then we started building level head and started yeah. using it in the game, and then we de- we sort of co developed it based on the the use cases of level head. Yeah, um, and and. and during none of those times were you under 
extreme deadlines. No, like there was time yeah. pressure here and there, right? But there was there's never always time pressure. There's always yeah. time pressure, but there was never a moment where it was like this has to happen by this date or you know, and I don't care what quarters you have to cut or how long it takes <laughs> you or how many more hours you have to put yeah, in. You can do it, and again, like, and, and that's not to say I ever did anything particularly well, right? It was that I had the opportunity and the time. And to try the, to learn to do it, and the better. flexibility to to try to do it, right? To yeah. to take a moment first and ask, like, what do have have other people faced similar problems, and what did they do and learn? Right. But I think this is this is what's so uh, nefarious to me about all this stuff, like from a philosophical standpoint, which is that it's the sort of thing where like rest and slack beget rest and slack, right? Yeah. And the opposite is also true. Yeah. We talk about what heroic. The more does. you grind, the more you grind. Yeah, you know? and so so yeah. it becomes this really interesting question where at some point, you know, if you're you know if you feel this in your say your day to day work or just in your day to day life, even uh, we talk about in DevOps, there's that idea of just stopping production, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're like, we just need to halt for a moment so we could figure out what the hell's going on and how to do it better, right? And I think that you know that it can't be understated how important. That is, or, and even being able to carve out like, you know, even small wins with your, I know we've had some, uh, some people in our, in our podcast, um, discord talking about some of the stuff they've been able to get basically applied at work, uh, after hearing some uh, ideas on the podcast and even just getting like getting 30 minutes of like, okay, get, like, get your manager, be like, yeah, you can work on this more sort of high level, far reaching, essentially a Slack project for like 30 minutes a day. Like that's all I'm giving you, but that's what I can get. Because being able to show the dividends from that within a, you know a couple of weeks uh, and calculating those things, suddenly again, like it's not only saving you time, but it's saving everybody time. And it again, starts carving out a bigger and bigger space for this kind of thinking. And so it's yeah, and, and there are ways to do it structurally, and you have to do it structurally. It has to be structural. Yeah. It has to be. So like you have to have these things where it's like so. So with sure, for example, like he's been wanting to learn some C which would be really helpful for him. Cause that's a good just thing to know. Right. Uh, which means in turn, it's helpful for the studio cause he's a programmer, but also it would allow him to do some cool stuff that we currently can't do with like adding functionality, uh, into our games that integrates more tightly with consoles, for example. Um, nothing that has to happen, but it would be cool if it did. And, and it would provide him some opportunities to learn diverse new stuff that complements, but also dramatically extends his knowledge and skill set. And he's been wanting to do it for a long time. And finally we're just like, just set aside one hour of the work day per day. Just do that. That just is a requirement now, right? That's, that's your just, job now. That's just part of your job. Yeah. Set aside one hour and and go through C++ coursework, which he's now been doing. He's like halfway through this like 90 fucking course or 90 lecture course. Uh, and it's already been paying dividends. Like he's, his his approach to his, his normal day-to-day programming has gotten better. He and I have now been built into our day actual code review where we spend uh, however long it takes going over his code and the rationale behind it and and uh, and in the beginning, it was mostly code stuff because like we were because uh, he hadn't had a lot of code review and I have a lot of opinions. Right. So so there was a lot of <laughs> code review at the beginning, but it's actually kind of changed even over just a few weeks into being more of like philosophy of design of software and how to think about designing APIs and stuff. Uh, which has been really helpful for me too, because it's, it's required me to figure out how to articulate things that are just like in my brain, right? Or he, me, and him collaboratively coming to conclusions about how to think about things explicitly that that otherwise would just remain implicit and also create worse work. But the only reason that these things are happening and are and are clearly really valuable and, and working is because we built them into the structure, and it's just accepted. It's just allowed that like, oh yeah, sure, and I take half an hour to an hour basically every morning. Um, just doing code review stuff. And I, and I take him through my code so that he can get another pair of eyeballs on it and he can give me some suggestions and I can teach him stuff about uh, the tech stack that I'm in so that he can then take that back to his own stuff and vice versa, right? And if if every moment of every day was just me being like, oh, fuck, I got to get more features built into Rumpus, right? Um, then it would just Not, be unpleasant. It would just well, be well, unpleasant. You, your programming wouldn't be improving because all you'd be doing is producing. Right. right? Well, and, 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 and neither would shirts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and and even in the past just few months when like we really started to hit this this stuff particularly hard after we got past the level head launch and then like the post launch update window and stuff and then we truly truly like carved out slack and did it more importantly as a system um this is actually the first time ever that i've that i've that i've actually felt like i can just that i am just producing quality work like it's the first time i've ever felt like that i've always felt like i've done like useful stuff that did cool things and that worked, right? Like I felt that before, but I've never felt like the actual, like the code itself was 
good, right? Or yeah. that it like, or that my knowledge that led to that code was like deep, right? right. And this is the <laughs> you're first time just, you're just getting that. stuff working, you know, just stuff working, and, <laughs> and it's past, yeah. and yeah, and and it's because we've carved out this time. Um, and I've watched Sure basically very rapidly coming into the same to the same position just just in a few months, right? Uh, because this, this time got carved out, and so now my my productivity when I do go to code something is just like fucking off the charts. Um, yep, because yeah, quality the, matters. Yeah, quality matters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think I mean I I want to keep going on this, but also I really want to answer some questions. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, good. Questions. We, do you guys have any final thoughts? No, that's a good question. All that's good time. All right. These questions come from our listeners over at podcast.bscotch.net. The highest upvoted question comes from Panit Pawaka, who says, Telltale Games shut down a while ago. Kentucky Route Zero wrapped up last year, and while Final Fantasy VII's remake is finally going ahead, besides that, there are so few episodic games nowadays. But why? As someone who finds the format fascinating, I'm curious, what do you three think of it? Is it a viable format, both artistically and commercially, especially for indies? Mm. I, I think, think it, I have some answers, but go ahead. You guys, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So I, I think uh, dealing with distribution is one of the hardest, most complicated parts of developing a game, uh, in my opinion. Yeah. So for example, we had to take, I think, over 800 screenshots of level head to deploy it because it has multiple languages, right? Mm-hmm. Um, every storefront requires uh, a, a f- at least a few screenshots, so like three to five, basically. Some stores require up to like 15 to 20 screenshots, depending on like if they have different aspect ratios. Like and you got to do that. Store. Yeah. yeah, and you got to yeah. do that in every language, right? So so the the bigger your operation, the more you're localizing, the more platforms you're hitting or whatever – um, the more just literally just brute force grunt work goes into getting these games out. Because there's the other thing is there's there's no just like off the shelf tooling for really any of this shit. But also the platforms themselves, they do not prioritize automation. They really don't. They're, the developer experience is focused on you're in if there's any at all. But if, if there's any if, if there's any dev experience that they focus on, it's basically for the business people who are coming to Correct. the web portal. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's not for the developers who are like, mm, I need to have a DevOps pipeline that allows me to automatically get builds into the system and then like have them automatically go out once QA checks it off. Like there's nothing in there. Uh, I think the one exception, because I do think we could shout out someone who does it well, is actually uh, Google Play, where yes. their developer tooling for like automating stuff is we actually haven't even taken advantage of most of it because nobody else does it. And so the, the value proposition isn't that high. Uh just relatively speaking. But um but they like they let you there's an API for everything. Right. Yeah. Uh, which is just not the case for everybody else. Yeah. And so, so the trouble with it, with episodic games is then like, uh, you would be developing a game fairly quickly and then taking the time to, de- to deploy it. Like, cause it's an episode. So it's going to be like a smaller piece. Right? Launches and are you, expensive. Yeah. Then you develop episode two and launch that, develop episode three and launch that. And every launch is a fixed cost. Like every launch just has a built-in shit ton of work. You have, to do, it. And you have to do marketing. It's, it's not just the process of getting it in the store. It's like it's the announcements, the marketing, the PR moves. It's it's uh, uh, whatever engine you've constructed that knows about people and gets information to them. You know, mm-hmm. like like everything is yeah. is very costly. And maintenance is costly as well. So if you have yeah. the same, let's say you have like a five episode game, like the the Walking Dead series, five five episodes. Um, what if you need to patch something in your engine or how the games talk to your server? Well, yeah, I guess enough five patches per platform. Well, they all, of one, like the right? Walking Dead, that was all, they're all bundled together, aren't they? They're not five standalone things. The episodes are delivered uh, as essentially as DLC, right? Well, so that's the way you, that's the way you'd have to do it. So, mm-hmm. so if you, so if you want to do episodic content, if you break, if you break it apart, then it becomes incredibly expensive because of all this launch stuff, Right. Um, so the way you'd have to do it then is through DLCs. But the consumer response to hitting a paywall inside of a game is always overwhelmingly negative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so look at what happened with like Mario uh, uh, on the um, Super Mario run, mm-hmm. right? Like you got a little little uh, tidbit of, of content. I think you could replay the first bits of it just kind of forever, or something, but uh, then it was like you'd hit a ten dollar paywall to get to the rest of the thing, and it had that U shaped review curve, right? Like 
half of half of the reviews are five stars and half are one stars. So it averages out around like low threes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so episodic games sort of by their definition have some way to break the content apart um, into deliverables that players need to sort of opt into. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, people just don't play. Players just don't respond. Well, to well I, think, I think it's, it's not just that. I think to me, actually the bigger problem is that, you're essentially making uh, if you're if you're doing it an episodic game, you're essentially doing a franchise, right? Except one where each subsequent game, uh, if you're delivering it via something like a DLC mechanism, which is the I think I think is a typical case, mm-hmm. because you also don't want people who haven't played the first ones to buy the second one because it doesn't really make sense. Uh, you are essentially putting out one game in pieces, right? Um, now there's one advantage to this, which is that uh, you have a built-in audience, assuming your first game does well. Uh, Right, you have a built-in audience. There's a second advantage, which is that if you didn't have a built-in audience, then there's no sense putting those dev resources into those extra episodes. Mm-hmm. So it allows you to actually uh, make content faster with lower risk, right? But the other thing that it does is it means that now each piece of content you put out has a it's thing guaranteed. that's called an attach rate, right? Mm-hmm. The attach rate yeah. is the fraction of existing players who own the parent content who will now buy the ch- the child content, right? Uh, and that is not. One hundred percent, right? It's always somebody it's can't always buy it. Yeah, somebody can't buy episode three until they've bought the original game, and they're probably and also the bought one. episode two. Right? Yeah, so you got these the funnel shrinks. Yeah, so you got you have actually have a shrinking funnel, and versus say now like you launch uh, a, a new Final Fantasy game, right? Or you launch a, 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 a you know Half Life. Th- three right or whatever you, you launch the, <laughs> a the next, sequel you launch the sequel you launch the next game in the franchise as a standalone separate launch it doesn't strictly depend on the prior one uh and and now all of a sudden there, since there's no requirement you're not looking at attach rate that's not that's you're not looking at only a fraction of the existing audience gets to buy it that's still true the, the, there's already a built-in fan base there are people who are into it uh, again hopefully otherwise why would you've done a sequel and uh and now all those people have the same sort of attach rate in principle that if had you done a DLC, they would have, except now also other people can buy it. Yeah. Right. I mean, the first Fallout game that I played is Fallout 3. Yeah. I don't know shit about Fallout 1 and 2, and I didn't have to, uh, and it was fine. Yeah. yeah so, I so I think, well, there's a, there's some other weird implications here too when you just look at uh, player behavior. So it's not, I guess the problem is it's, it's, it's trying to take the season based uh, technique from television, right? And kind of apply it on the game side. But the, the difficulty is I don't know the actual exact numbers on basically attach rates, you know, season to season on shows, or even like if you start watching a show, how likely is it that any given person's going to like, you know, carry on uh, through it, get stuck on it. Um, I'm not sure on the numbers but, on those, but the reality is even in games that don't have a seasonal or episodic component to them, we know the statistics from steam are basically that like it's less than less than half of people who play your game um, end up getting halfway through your game. Basically, no matter what the game is, is sort of the, the general high level. I mean, even stuff like your most award winning is Bioshock Infinite. It's like 42% of people hit like the middle milestone. Uh, six hours. Six hours yeah. play, right? Attach yeah. rate is an extremely <laughs> limiting way to sell. Yeah. Content. So the reality is now, here, now here's, well, here's the thing though. Maybe as subscription services become more of it, because Sam, when you're talking about TV shows, like the thing about like Game of Thrones, which. You know, I know people. We don't we don't like talk about it because of what because of what happened. Yeah, you know, because because of the the accident. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but uh, but I didn't start watching Game of Thrones until after season five Same started, here. right? And like I had heard some grumblings about it. I knew it was a thing, or whatever. Um, but there were only really two ways for me to watch Game of Thrones earlier, which was pirate it, which I wasn't going to do. Or get a cable subscription and then buy HBO, (laughs) which I also wasn't going to do. And it wasn't until HBO released their online streaming uh, that I could just like pay for that for a couple of months, watch Game of Thrones, and then be like, all right, I'm out, peace, and then I'll subscribe, right? Yeah, yeah, for me, it was when I could buy the seasons on Amazon, just like just buy the digital copies of the game. Yeah, So, so the thing is like, if if every season of Game of Thrones, if I had to pay twenty bucks or whatever, uh, there's a decent chance that I, you know, wouldn't have gone gotten into the first episode or the first season to begin with. But because I could pay for a lower uh, rate subscription, check the show out, and even if I didn't like it, well, there's tons of other shows too, so I can also just kind of like browse around. No, you're right. The, the subscription so, service might might bring back some of the episodic content. Yeah, because now you don't have to 
you'd have to choose to opt into the experience and it, and it costs you nothing extra to go into episode two. So the attach rates can be a lot higher, uh, and they can be more self-reinforcing like they're with, with TV shows. Like as Well, the, but if you think about TV shows, the other thing that TV shows do that I don't know if episodic games do is that every fucking episode, every single one assumes that you have no idea what's happening, right? Every, like the first like two minutes of every episode of a, of a, a normal TV show, yeah. right? It's a, it's a recap. <laughs> and they, sure, yeah. they don't introduce the characters, but like they – the characters who are involved in the recap make it very clear very quickly, like who's important and, and like kind of why. I mean, honestly, this is one of those funny things that I, that, you know, as you mentioned that, like not being able to have a recap when you get back into a game, even just a game that you've been playing for a while. Yeah. Uh, especially any. Previously. Yeah. In honestly, yeah. Skyrim. If we can get something <laughs> automated for that in Crash Bandicoot, because like when you come back to a big open world RPG or anything where you were doing like a lot of stuff, like. Yeah. You're, you're just absolutely- like, what? You're like, what the fuck is going on? And then you just typically, what I've done always, you just start burn it over. down. I have to start over, yep. which means I just play it. Maybe this is why people never make it past that, like, you know, middle achievement thing. Because it's like, actually, you're just replaying the first four to six hours over and yeah. over again every three months, you know? Yeah, I've started Fallout 4, I think, three <laughs> times now, and I've never made it more than about, like, eight hours in. Yeah, because you come, you come back and you're like, what is happening? Like, what have Where I am done? I? Who am I? Why did I pick these ridiculous perks? What's wrong <laughs> yes. with my character? Honestly, Why do like, I, I look like this? You know, I, I think in a big, like big RPG context, these, these games are meant to be open world or these like really long form games. I mean, The Witcher, uh, you they know, essentially Fallout. are episodic. Yeah, they essentially are episodic. It's just all in there. But I think uh, the episodes are broken up by your play sessions, and I think it's actually it'd be really nice if if the game knew how long it'd been since you uh, yeah. returned. It would give you kind of like a you know like a rap sheet of like, here's all the stuff you did kind of like high level beats and, uh, and kind of where you're at and what's up next. Like just when you pop yeah. back in, I would oh, love even if something like from, for like the more open world style things, say like a Valheim, right. Yeah. Or a Terraria. Uh, cause like, cause my, my wife and I still like, we, we were just like, Terraria is one of the things we just come back to every once in a while, like on a weekend, we're like, let's play the fuck out of some Terraria. Now we sit down for like 12 total hours or whatever and do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but every time we come back, we always like first open up one of our old, worlds you know with our old characters to see like where were we what were we doing and then serious i don't fucking know it could have been anything right <laughs> yes uh like what's on this map what's even happening right in the absence of easy things like oh yeah just signs that you can just like label the map with right or yep. like an in-game notepad where you can just like take notes about what you're like or a to-do list or whatever right that, that you control mm-hmm. uh is it's one of those things like for for an open world game like just really simple mechanisms like that because uh, like so, so Valheim does have on the map. You can now you can put little markers down and, and type labels in. Ooh. And the moment I discovered that, I was like, oh my god! It just it like changed everything. Because now when we like when my wife and I come back into the game, which granted currently is every day, so we're not we're not forgetting a lot. Uh, but we can just be like, oh yeah, weren't there some crypts we like we found we want to go like dig into? And we just open up the map, and sure enough, there's a few, and they're like labeled as done or or waiting or whatever, you know? So we're just yeah. like, oh yeah, there's, we just have a built-in to-do list and we you've kind of turned the things to do. Yeah. You turn the map into like a quest log, basically yeah, exactly. a personal quest log. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think there's another like final nail in the coffin for the current form of episodic games, which is, so think about like when your favorite TV show gets canceled, you're like, ah, oh, dang it. Mm-hmm. But that's it. Right. Cause like you were watching it on a thing that you had already paid for. So you're watching on Netflix and you're like, ah, oh, crap. You didn't buy it directly, probably. Yeah, they are canceling that show, but like, ah, it's a bummer, right? Imagine, though, if you had to pay like $20, $40, $60 for the first season of the show. And that was the only way to get it, right? And they set up all these story threads and stuff. And <laughs> like, oh, this is going to be great. Like, I can't wait to see where this is going. And then the developers of the show come out and they're like, they're like, yep, that's it. No season two. That's it. It's canceled now. Yeah. Like you, the, the outrage would be, it would shatter the earth, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, well, cause yeah, so I mentioned I, the risk aspect of this earlier, right? If that idea, like you can now sell a smaller game first and then you can gauge uh, how effectively you can sell it before you start investing and in making, you know, making it bigger. Right. But as Seth noted, the problem with that is that there's another cost there that adds risk, right? Which is, which is player response. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Episodes are supposed to be open-ended so that they can be continued in this, in the next episode. Right. And that means that you need to be able to reliably predict that the audience will be there for the first episode, such that you have the justification to make the second one, uh, and do, do right by your paying players who bought it. Right. Mm. Uh, which is why, again, like, with subscription services, I think the model works. 
And outside of that context, I think it's really, it's really weird and risky. So, uh, all right. We got time for one more question from Tappy Trip Duvark, who says, I've worked in 3D animation, filmmaking, and games Ooh. as both an artist and coder. So sort of a poly, cool. a poly, poly math. Uh, lately, I've been working as a programmer for a company and trying to get the motivation to work on my own side project. It could be purely for fun or perhaps for profit, but I've been struggling with what I can only describe as creative block, a kind of apathy towards any new ideas that come up. I can't tell if I'm being too picky with my ideas or just uninspired in general. Any advice on how to reignite that creative spark? Oh, yeah. I've been there. I've been there. What you got, Seth? I think – What's in your bag of tricks? Well, so I don't – there's no one-size-fits-all answer here, but I do think that that it's a bit illuminating the way that um, Tappy Trip talks about this, which mm-hmm. is to say like – could be for fun. Maybe it's for profit. 100%. I was going to you know? nail it on that too. And I, and I think that's the key because anytime I've started working on a side project, as soon as I start to think like, ooh, <laughs> I bet I could sell this thing, it gets abandoned within like an hour <laughs> <laughs> because, because it's a side project, which means um, which means it's not a priority. You don't have to. You don't have to. It's not a priority. You don't have to work on it, right? And you're only going to work on it if you're just having a good time. Mm-hmm. And that's what you need to optimize for. Because as soon as you start thinking like, mm, I wonder how I should like think about monetize. Like what should I do in it? Purchases? Maybe I should do some ads. Right? Episodic, like, that's, you know, that's yeah, new, fresh. that's not for you anymore. That's something that you're just, you're, you're trying, you're trying to take the thing that you're pumped about and figure out how to, how to twist it around enough that you can get a, a few nickels out of it. Here's you know? a counterpoint. Um, because there's another part that I seized on with the question, which was, mm. uh, which was the, the creative block part, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah, the creative block could be coming because there's this question of maybe it's profit, and now you're thinking about all these now like the the constraints are kind of all over the place, and you haven't really nailed them down, right? But the other part is is if there's nothing in particular you're like already interested in doing, right? Then you need to find an interesting problem, and the interesting problem could be make a game I can sell, right? Mm-hmm. There's no reason it couldn't be that. It could be anything. The the problem is if if the whole thing is like this whole idea of like of a creative block and like not knowing what to do and whatever, it just means that you haven't you don't you don't have any any defined constraints. It's right? a commitment you don't have problem. Goals. Yeah. You haven't you haven't made an you haven't made enough decisions. There's about nothing you're what trying to do. Yeah, but what is it you're trying to do? Yeah, so one of the yeah, ways we um, get around this with the with our projects as well is to think about not not what you would generally consider the, the quote unquote the creative part of the project, but the other stuff entirely, which is what we want to get out of it. So, in the case of something like uh, like Levelhead, we were like, we want to try making uh, a game that actually leverages all this web stuff. Like that, that was the prompt. We wanted then, to grow the the number of people that we had in our database mm-hmm. for our our. System. So, if you got and, and have a community, a community focused game. Yeah. So, if yeah. you have capabilities on the animation side, on the coding side, kind of like you know. A, smattering of all this stuff um i think a, a fun way to, to go about it could be to just ask yourself like what what aspects of the work you have done or uh even other people's you know, other movies or whatever else that you've liked what aspect of that can you focus on as like the skill building component of having done this project like at the end of this project i want to be in a spot where where i've like done some really stupidly complex uh you know physics animations for cloth you're gonna make a very specific game in that context right or like oh you know what i haven't done yeah like i haven't haven't done like a like a lighting um a lot of lighting stuff and i know environmental lighting is a big thing and it'd it'd be really fun to kind of dive into that and figure out what's going on uh and then use that as the kind of central point to build out the game from yeah or take Um, a thing that you already think you are good at and just be like i want to see like I'm good at this. Let me see how how much I can showcase how fucking awesome I am at this particular thing or whatever. Yeah, but the, the point here being that if you don't have a reason – because this is something that I also suffer from constantly, which is I have the vague idea that it would be cool to do X, right? Like I've had the vague idea forever, but oh, it would be, be cool to know how to do woodworking, right? Uh, I have, I've set myself up a woodworking shop in my in my garage. I haven't used it. You know why? Because I don't have anything to woodwork, you know? And it's not because I'm lacking – it's easy to misattribute and say like, oh, I just don't have any ideas for what to make, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, that actually isn't the problem. The problem is I don't have a rationale for wanting to woodwork in the first place. I don't have a goal for what I'm going to – like 
Like, what is, what is this about? What is this for? Right? Because it, well, yeah, it if would you be choose cool, that first, if you say it would be cool if I could do X, like that's not a goal. That's just a fact. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, it, that would be cool. Right. I mean, or I want to get back into making games as a hobby or in my case, it's like, I've, I have a whole bunch of like websites that I want to make also as a hobby to like practice certain skills, try out some new tech, like Svelte and some other cool stuff that, cause the, the web, the web dev is the, is hilarious and how fast new shit comes out. That is now, that is now the, the cool thing. The new that, paradigm. That, you must that, six months later. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I want to try some of these things out and like, and have fun doing it. And every time I do though, but uh, the, I don't have a, a good why. And the end result is that I just don't like, I've been working on my personal website now that I've, I've literally nuked and rebuilt the Git repo for it. Uh, I think six times in six months, you know? And the reason is because I don't know what it's for. Like, what is, what is my personal <laughs> website for? Right. I haven't, I haven't decided that first. I was just like, Ooh, I want to use this new tech to make my new website. Mm-hmm. Right. But why though? What is, what is its purpose? And well, as soon there's, as I there's another settled on that finally that I've actually started making progress. I think there's a, there's a, flip side to think about this. Uh, I, you guys remember that book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up? Mm-hmm. There was a really interesting, almost like a one-liner in that book that has like really stuck with me as a, as a, as a really interesting philosophy, just in, in general, which is she's talking about books, okay? And about like, how do, you dis- how do you decide which books to keep and which books not to keep? And a lot of people will hold on to books that they've owned for a long time but have never read because they think maybe someday I will read that book, right? And her her answer to that was to say, donate that book because what you have learned from that book is that you're not going to read it. You're not interested in it, right? It's So you've already gotten what you needed from that book. Congratulations, you're done with it now. Yeah, you can also um, free yourself and, entirely from this need to make this particular project, which might be causing this creative block. Well, it's, it's not even about that. It's about it's about saying, like, what does it mean for a project to be done? And and it means you've gotten out of it what you needed. So, but you first so, have to know what you needed. Right, well, you, so you got to know what you need. So in, Sam, in Sam's example, like, if you're saying, like, man, it would be, so, be so cool if I could make a game that had just, like, really dope capes and cloth physics, yeah. right? Then you make a project, and for a weekend, you just you just tinker around with with cloth physics. And by the end of it, maybe you you're like, "Wow, fuck cloth physics!" Yeah, boom, terrible project idea. project accomplished because you learned what you needed to. Or if at the end you're like, "Wow, I know a lot about cloth physics now, and I'm very excited about applying this to the so, next thing." In both cases, you finished the project. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think the the problem that a lot of people get is. And their mind is when they start something, it's very exciting for the first little bit as you're like laying down the foundations and stuff. And then you start to cast ahead and you mm-hmm. think, okay, let me list out all the, all the things that need to happen. If I'm really going to take this to the max, you know, I'm going to have to, this is like a yeah, seven year like, weekend zone, yeah. you know. And you're like, how am I going to sell this thing? Yeah. What's it's my target market? how do I finish market? the project versus how do I accomplish the goal? Yeah, which and recognizing the same that, thing necessarily. Well, and I would say actually you need to reframe them to be the same thing, which is like once you've accomplished the goal, the project is done now. Yeah, exactly. Move on, and it's not about making a complete game necessarily, or even like if you say like maybe you want to write a book, right? Or or, or maybe that's like a longer term goal. Like it, it, in Adam's case, it would be cool if you know mm-hmm. if I could if I could write a book. Um, but you don't have to write a book now. There's a there's a thousand there's a million things that you could do. To, to do some experimental projects that you can finish in a weekend and answer some questions about what that means, right? You could write a short story this weekend and then it's done now and you don't have to think about, am I going to submit this to some publications? Am I going to whatever? Share it with your friends, get some feedback and or just burn it. Yep. <laughs> as long as you got out of it uh, the answers that you yeah, were looking which is, for. Which is not to say now. you couldn't go off and say like, I want to make a commercial game as a side project. That's just another example of That's a thing goal, that you could though. go do. It's a goal, exactly. Yeah. And, and if the focus there is on the commercial part, right, then that changes the approach. That, that's no longer you now saying like, ooh, I have this game idea or like, ooh, I can't even think of a game idea, but I just want to make a game. I wonder if it should be commercial, right? Like that's a very different approach because now if you say like, I want to make a game that I, that, that I could sell. Because now the first phase of that is how the fuck do you make games that people buy? It's not even about making the game, right? It's like – because now you're going to start digging into things like what genres sell well? Where would I want to launch it? Like what, what do I have access to if I'm a solo developer, right? How much time am I willing to put in the first place? As you start to knock out all these questions, you'll start to create your set of constraints, 
right? Mm-hmm. And so if you're like if you're just gonna do this on your own and you're you're not gonna make a big production and you're basically taking a minimal risk, then probably what you're gonna do is launch a game on Steam. That's probably what's gonna happen, right? And in that scenario, what do people buy on Steam, right? There's all kinds of interesting people doing cool research on this stuff, trying to figure out like uh, how do you know what people are into? How do you make assets that that people can get behind? How do you promote it ahead of time? There's all this stuff that you can just go learn, yeah. but that's assuming you know what your goal is. Well, there's a really good rule of thumb here, which I think is uh, is that in, hidden inside a question uh, is the answer, right? And so if you find yourself coming up against what feels like a creative block or something like that, it's oftentimes because your question is wrong. It's not it's not doing what it needs to be doing. The question shouldn't necessarily be something along the lines of like, what project should I make? Uh, or even what game should I make? Oftentimes, like, that's just the wrong fucking question because... It's, it's what do you want? Yeah, what do you, you know? want? What do you really what want? Are you, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to get? Yeah. What are you trying to be? You know? And then the game is is not an end, but a means. Correct. Yeah. You know, it's a means toward getting the thing that you want. Mm-hmm. So you have to you have to answer that question. Actually, in my... Uh, I have a talk from 2016 Pixel Pop Festival on YouTube called Do What You Want, which <laughs> which is about I mean, it's about some of it is about this. Um, and that talk I called this goal fog, which is that uh, people do this all the time when they go, I'm going to exercise more. And that's like that's how they frame it. Yep. Right. And the problem is you 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 can't achieve that and you don't know when it's done. And that statement doesn't indicate anything about what you would do to, to get there, right? Because uh, as soon as you go take a walk over lunch, you've have you done it? <laughs> have it you count? exercised more? Because right. uh, you didn't ex- you didn't take a walk the last week, so you I guess you kind of did, right? Uh, check that one off. Boom, creative block, right? Uh, but if you if you instead say like I'm gonna run a mile in six minutes, which is, you know, it's pretty fast. Uh, well, how fast do you run the mile currently? Time to do some timings. Now figure out how do people speed up their mile run time? What can I do? Do I run stairs? Do I run longer distance? Do I do sprints? Come up with a plan and start mm-hmm. measuring your results, you know, which is very different than just exercising more, but it gets you to the same destination, which is you're in better shape now. Right. Uh, except you actually did it because you you had a clear goal and a and a means by which to get there. So uh, I think that hope that helps. Yeah, think so. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. We'd like to thank our producers Fat Bard and Jen Coster for putting the podcast together, and thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, just go to podcast.bscotch.net, where we have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the archives. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.